welcome you to week four of a series uh, we're walking through this fall called The Faces of Sin. This series is designed to take a look at how different uh, stories and passages in Scripture uh, talk about the concept of sin. So like I said, this is week four. Um, What we've talked about so far is Adam and Eve in the garden, very first sin recorded in Scripture. And then after that, it was Cain and Abel. Last week, if you were here, it was how sin manifested itself in the life of King Saul. Uh, But today, and actually it's going to be for two weeks, we're going to camp out in uh, just a four-chapter, pretty small book in the Old Testament, the book of Jonah. And uh, over over two weeks, we're going to look at how sin manifested itself in in Jonah's life. So with that, I'll just go ahead and read what we're talking about. I'm in Jonah chapter 1. Let me read verses 1 to 16. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because their wickedness has confronted me. However, Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. Then the Lord hurled a violent wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose on the sea that the ship threatened to break apart. The sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his God. They threw the ship's cargo into the sea to lighten the load. Meanwhile, Jonah had gone down to the lowest part of the vessel and had stretched out and fallen into a deep sleep. The captain approached him and said, What are you doing sound asleep? Get up. Call to your God. Maybe this God will consider us and we won't perish. Come on, the sailors said to each other. Let's cast lots. Then we'll know who's to blame for this trouble we're in. So they cast lots, and the lot singled out Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us who's to blame for this trouble we're in. What's your business and where are you from? What's your country? What people are you from? He answered them, I'm a Hebrew. I worship Yahweh, the God of the heavens, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were even more afraid and said to him, What is this you've done? The men knew he was fleeing from the Lord's presence because he told them. So they said to him, what should we do to you to calm this sea that's against us? For the sea was getting worse and worse. He answered them, pick me up and throw me into the sea so it may quiet down for you, for I know that I'm to blame for this violent storm that's against you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they couldn't because the sea was raging against them more and more. So they called out to the Lord, please, Yahweh, don't let us perish because of this man's life. Don't charge us with innocent blood, for you, Yahweh, have done just as you pleased. And they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. The men feared the Lord even more, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. This is God's word. So we don't know a whole lot about Jonah uh, outside of the book of Jonah, but he is mentioned one other time. He's found in uh, the book of 2 Kings, and we're told that he prophesied during the reign of Jeroboam II, who was a king of Israel who served a number of years after David. And I don't want to bore you with a history lesson, but the reason that that's important to note is because it tells us uh, that Jonah, you know, he was serving as a prophet of God's people pretty late into Israel's development as a kingdom, which meant um, a lot of prophets served before he did. And so he had the benefit of kind of looking back and getting a general lay of the land, a knowledge of what to expect if you're a prophet of God. And one of the things that uh, pretty much every prophet of God in the nation of Israel's history had in common 
was that their lives were real difficult. Uh, you can look at Moses, Elijah, Samuel, Nathan, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and what their stories all have in common, it's actually, I think, one of the only things that they have in common, is they didn't have a real fun time being a prophet. Uh, to be a prophet of God's people in the Old Testament was basically to um, accept as a lifestyle that you're going to be misrepresented, you're going to be misunderstood, you're going to be maligned, in some cases you're going to be murdered. So Jonah knew all that. Uh, he didn't have any illusions about the fact that being a prophet wasn't going to be easy. However, there is one assumption that Jonah did have that becomes real clear in the book of Jonah. One assumption that he did have that um, almost ruined his life. His assumption was that just like every prophet that came before him, he was going to be a prophet of God's people to God's people, which in Jonah's defense, that's not a crazy thing to assume. But what happens at the very beginning of the story of Jonah is God comes to him and basically says, well, you are half right. He tells Jonah, uh, essentially, you are a prophet of God's people. However, unlike the prophets that came before you, you are going to be a prophet to the enemies of God's people. Now, I say this uh, to say this. When you boil down Jonah's life, uh, it essentially is this, and I think this is where Jonah is just incredibly relatable. The story of Jonah is the story of an individual who woke up one day only to realize that his plans for his life and God's plans for his life did not line up. Just maybe there's a few people on the other side of this teaching that can relate to that in more than an intellectual way. When it came time for Jonah to deal with that, he couldn't deal with that. So he did what we have all been doing ever since Genesis chapter 3. He took off running. And so the story of Jonah is this four-chapter, it's a beautiful story, it's a powerful story. I mean, pound for pound, there is about as much truth packed into these four chapters as you can fit, which is so like God. But what Jonah is, is it is the timeless story of, on the one hand, the lengths that people go to to get away from God, and on the other hand, the lengths that God is willing to go to to rescue us from ourselves. And so that's what I want to spend the next two weeks talking about the lengths that we go to to get away from them, the lengths that he's willing to go to to get us back. Today, however, we're going to focus more on the first aspect of this. We're going to look at the lengths that we go to to get away from God. <clears throat> and so I'm going to split this, open, uh, this, this opening narrative in chapter 1 into four parts. This is going to kind of serve as a guide to our time together this morning. I want to talk first and foremost uh, about what Jonah did and what that shows us about the essence of sin. Secondly, I want to look at who Jonah is and what that shows us about the subtlety of sin. Then third, I want to look at what Jonah became and what that shows us about the effects of sin. And then fourthly, lastly, we'll, com we'll conclude by talking about how Jonah was saved and what that shows us about the answer to sin. How's that sound? Great, great. It's all I have prepared, so it doesn't really matter what the answer is. <laughs> So first off, we're going to look at what Jonah does and what it shows us about the essence of sin. Uh, we'll look at the first three verses of this story. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because their wickedness has confronted me. However, Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. So opening, opening phrase of this book is this phrase, the word of the Lord came. Whenever you see that in the Bible, that's a Hebrew phrase, the Old Testament as you, you might know, was written originally in Hebrew. That's a Hebrew phrase uh, that is really um, talking about the calling of a prophet. 
Uh, Jonah, when that word comes to him as a prophet of God, instead of listening to it and obeying it and speaking what God says on God's behalf, he runs from it. And what you and I have to understand, if this story is going to make sense, is that for a prophet of God uh, to run away and not deliver the message of God when it came, that is so much more significant than just an isolated act of obedience. That's what you call a deal breaker. And to kind of explain uh, how big of a deal this is, uh, let me lean on my uh, time in the fire service. So as a thought experiment here, just can you imagine, uh, it took me two and a half years to get into the fire service. Can you imagine me taking all that time, going through all those hiring cycles and steps of the process, then getting into the fire academy, graduating that, getting out into the field, off probation, I'm in my firehouse with my crew, and then we get a call for a house fire, and I just kind of d- refuse to go, you know, for whatever reason. Not really feeling it today, got a lot going on, I feel like I haven't processed well, so I'm going to sit this one out. I think you can understand. That's not the kind of thing that my lieutenant would make a mental note about, and then decide to circle back with me at my yearly evaluation, that's a deal breaker. You know, uh, being a firefighter and refusing to fight fire is a refusal to do the one thing that basically your entire life is supposed to be about. I don't know what you call a firefighter that won't fight fire, but you can stop calling him a firefighter. In a similar way, I don't know what you call a prophet of God that refuses to prophesy on God's behalf, but he's not a prophet of God anymore. So when Jonah has this word of the Lord come to him and he refuses to deliver it, uh, this is essentially, this is Jonah <clears throat> looking at God and, and, and saying, I'm done getting my calling in life and my purpose in life and really my identity from you, God, from here on out. I'm going to decide who I am uh, and how I live. That essentially is the, uh, what, what the story of Jonah is, is teaching us. Uh, that is the, the essence of sin. It's not just about breaking rules. It's about trying to build an identity for yourself apart from God. So let's pause here and have a team meeting. A couple of weeks ago, somebody came. Did I just hear, oh, Lord, did I hear that? Uh, I agree. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, somebody came to me um, super kindly and respectfully. But they said, Ryan, you know, I really appreciate the way that, uh, that you end every message with the gospel. And I appreciate the way that you talk about sin. However, however. Uh, they said, I really wish that you would um, speak more directly to the particular cultural issues that we're dealing with uh, today and what the Bible has to say about that. Uh, The story of Jonah here gives me an opportunity to do that, and so I want to take a moment here and talk about transgenderism. And that is how you capture a congregation's attention. (laughs) Some of you were falling asleep. Everybody's wide awake now. If... uh, if the Israel in the Old Testament, if Israel in the Old Testament had ten commandments, uh, then it could be said that the culture that you and I are living in right now, uh, a culture that is increasingly becoming uh, post-Christian, it's secular, it's modern, it's highly individualistic. Our culture really has one commandment, and it's something that I don't care how long you've been walking with Jesus or how many times a day you read your Bible. We are we are bombarded with this every day. And we are influenced by this to a far greater degree than any of us realize. We should just humble ourselves and admit that. The one commandment that, that our culture sort of lives by is this idea uh, that you need to be true to yourself. Uh, it's this idea that you should, the, the meaning in life for human beings 
is for you and I to look inside of our hearts and whatever thoughts, feelings, desires, impulses, opinions that we find in there, uh, that's who we really are. And we should pursue those things that we find within ourselves um, regardless of what anybody says, of what anybody thinks, of what anybody does, that we should be kind of like the sovereign self. We should be free to determine the parameters of who we are and how we live. And in our culture, that, that particular wind is blowing so powerfully that it's not only seen as acceptable to do that, it's almost like you're a coward if you don't do that. It's almost like you're doing something wrong if you're not being true to yourself. And one of the things that that's given rise to um, first off, let me say this. That ideology is as old as people are. That ideology goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, that we should define the parameters of our lives. But what that's given rise to in our cultural moment, the latest expression of that is what you can refer to as transgenderism. So the reason I'm bringing this up is because I was watching a paneled interview this week with a number of people kind of debating that ideology. And of course, on this panel, you had a man who felt like he was supposed to be a woman, obviously advocating for that position. And you can guess that, you know, that it became a spirited debate. But there's something that he said that really caught my attention that I feel like perfectly captures the spirit of the age that we're in. He, he made the point, and this is, this is a paraphrase, but it's pretty close to exactly what he said. He made the point and said, uh, there's really nothing more brave that a person can do than to be true to themselves. And therefore, he said, the bravest thing that you, you can do is, is to be transgender. Now, that's, my, my point is that's exactly what, what our culture sort of uh, hits us with, that the bravest thing that you can do, the most righteous thing that you can do, the most admirable thing that you can do is have the courage uh, to, to locate whatever in your heart and then you know, take that and make that your life and decide that's what I'm going to be you know, regardless of, of whatever else. I'm saying that to say, that what, what we're seeing here in Jonah is, is not only is, is that ideology, that ideology that says determine for yourself who you're going to be and how you're going to live. Determine what's right and wrong for yourself. What Jonah is saying here in particular, what the whole word of God is saying uh, in general, is not only is that not brave, but actually that is the essence of what the Bible defines as sin. Now, I want to be real clear here. This is, this is not a, for, for some of us, this is a purely intellectual issue. For some of us, this is hit really close to home. So I want to be crystal clear when you talk about a biblical view of this or a biblical response to this. I don't know if you have ever, if you've personally ever been asked this as a Christian uh, or if you have asked this yourself as you've kind of looked at the way that the culture seems to just be so volatile, specifically these last three years. But let me ask it for you. I think uh, it's a fair question that I've heard people say, what do Christians have against transgender people? Let me answer that question as a pastor. Nothing. We don't have a right to have an issue with any particular person, all right? Jesus Christ, when he was here, he commanded everybody who dares to claim to be one of his followers to love your neighbor as yourself. And when that question, when that statement brought the question, well, then who's my neighbor? Jesus answered that very definitively with his parable of the Good Samaritan. Your neighbor is every single human being you share planet Earth with, period. Jesus, hours before he went to the cross, he said, by this all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So I say that to say the word of God, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus and therefore you claim to have the word of God as your authority, the word of God does not give any of us license to have an issue with or have a problem with, to be unkind or disrespectful to any person on this planet. However, 
That same word of God, if you claim to follow Jesus, that same word of God also does not give us license to look at any kind of ideology that God says is not good and to call it anything other than what God says it is. This is the balance, this, this kind of tightrope that Christians have to walk where we need to be comfortable getting shots at both sides as we attempt to follow a Savior who was both full of truth and full of grace at the same time, all right? This is a huge topic, and I, I, I just want to invite, if you want to come up to me afterwards, you have any follow-up questions, you want to punch me in the face, whatever, I usually stand right there. I'm not kidding. You can come and talk to me. Please don't actually punch me in the face, but you can come and talk to me. But ju- just to make sure that I'm clear here, what, like what, what's actually going on here, uh, brief story. A couple of years ago, our very own Reginald Perry, who you may have heard of, somehow talked me into running a 12-mile race with him from Towson to Baltimore. To this day, I still have no idea how he did it, but he got me to do it. So I was out training for several hours, running, you know, getting ready for this race. While I was running, uh, I came across a song on Spotify that has really captured my attention because it's not written by Christians, or at least not written by people who claim to be Christians, and that's why the lyrics so grabbed me. Uh, it's a song called Netflix Trip, and in it, in the chorus, there, there's the repetition of these two phrases. It says, on the one hand, it says, who are we to wonder where we are going, which I thought was interesting, but right after that, this is what I would focus on, it says, and who am I to tell me who I am? I just, in the face of a modern, secularized, individualistic culture, let me just tell you on behalf of the Word of God, According to the Word of God, you are not qualified to tell you who you are. According to the Word of God, you, you and I, let me make this about us, you and I are not qualified to name ourselves. We are not qualified to define the parameters of what is right and wrong for ourselves. In short, we're not qualified to be our own gods. I'm saying this to say that's exactly what Jonah has done here. And if we're honest, it's what every single one of us have done and have been doing ever since Genesis chapter 3. Now, this is actually, this is a nod back to the first week of this series. I don't know if you were here when we talked about Adam and Eve. What happened in the garden when Adam and Eve ate that fruit, it's not just they really wanted a fruit salad and God said that's off the menu. What happened was two people looked at God and said, we don't trust you anymore. We don't trust that you know what's best. We don't trust that you want what's best for us. We don't trust that, that, uh, that happiness is found within Uh, the context of the parameters that you've set for our lives. And so Adam and Eve said, and every one of us have said with them, nobody gets to throw rocks here, what we have all done, what every human heart does is it looks to God and says, I, rather than you, God, should be free to determine the parameters of my own life. I should be free to name myself. I should be free to create an identity apart from you. Now, this begs a question that that deserves an answer. The question is, why is this such a big deal? What's, what's the actual issue with people deciding the parameters of right and wrong for themselves, deciding to build an identity for themselves outside of God? That question deserves an answer, and this passage of Scripture gives us one, but I'm going to get to that in point three. Before we get there, let me move real quickly to point two. I'm going to look at, secondly, uh, who Jonah is and what this story is telling us about the subtlety of sin. <clears throat> this point will be shorter than, than the next one, and then we'll get on to point three. Take a second here and, and zoom out. And ask yourself, this is an interesting question, specifically if you were reading this story as a, um, an Israelite in the Old Testament. Who's the bad guy in the story of Jonah? The really surprising answer is it's not the city of Nineveh, the literal enemies of God's people. They're not the bad guy. They look great here. Uh, it's not the, those godless pagan sailors that can't even figure out who they're supposed to pray to. They, they have far more respect for, for God, even though they don't know who God is, than Jonah does initially. The, the obvious answer to this 
is that the bad guy, if you want to put that in quotes, also happens to be the most religious person named in the story and the only person who happens to be a part of the national people of God, that is Jonah. And so here's why I'm, uh, I'm bringing this up. If the first thing this story hits us with is the idea that the essence of sin is not just breaking rules, it's trying to build an identity for yourself apart from God, and then the second thing that this story hits us with, really at the same time, is, hear me, you can be doing that underneath all of your, your, your rule-keeping and your religiosity and your morality and your good deeds. What Jonah is showing us, this is something that we didn't really see in the first three weeks of this, what Jonah is showing us is that you can have a wealth of biblical knowledge. You can have a calling on your life from God. You can be used mightily by God. You can be seen as a leader in a religious community, and underneath all of that, you can still be building an identity on something other than God that's just getting ready to blow up. You're, just, you're, you're one twist in the plot line of your life that reveals exactly how off your foundation was. That's what Jonah forces us to humble ourselves and admit. To understand how that's possible, you have to understand what the Bible's saying when it says that he ran from God. All right, I kind of touched this, uh, on this last week, but let me, let me go a little bit deeper here. I think on the surface... And, and maybe this is the case with all the stories that we look at in this series. But on the surface, it's easy to look at Jonah as this runaway prophet and say, I could never relate to somebody that flagrantly stupid and disrespectful. Because if the word of God audibly came to me, I would have never run from him the way that Jonah does here. And, and let me just speak to that for a moment. I don't know if you, if you caught it, but in, in my, um, in my uh, translation... I don't know how your, your version translates this, but in mine, twice it says that Jonah it, it wasn't just fleeing from God. It says that he was fleeing from the Lord's presence. That's really not a helpful translation because, and I think you'll agree, strictly speaking, it is impossible to flee the presence of an omnipresent being, which Jonah knew. When he's in the boat with the sailors, he actually says, I worship Yahweh. He's the God of the heavens who made the sea and the dry land. That pretty much covers the bases. It's Remarkably difficult to play hide-and-seek with a God like that, and Jonah obviously knew that. In the Hebrew, where, where it says <coughs> that, that uh, Jonah is running from God, in the Hebrew, what it literally says is he was running from the face of the Lord, from the face of the Lord. Now, what that is, that's relational language. And so understand this, that what's happening in Jonah's life here is he's not just running from the center of God's will. He's, he's running God out of the center of his life. That's what it means to build your identity on something other than God. And again, the striking thing that the story of Jonah is forcing us to come to terms with is you can do this deep within the recesses of your heart, even while outwardly you look like an absolute, you know, A-lister when it comes to, you know, religious, rule-keeping people of God, all right? So, Moving past that, now we're going to return to the, to the question I asked earlier. Let's ask the question, so what? Why does it matter if we decide, rather than God, to sort of be the authors of our own stories? Why does it, why does it matter if somebody does what Jonah says? You know, looks at God and says, actually, I don't, I don't like what you're doing with my life, so I'm going to, I'm going to do something different. I'm going to build my identity on something other than you. Uh, I'm going to take matters into my own hands. Why is that an issue? So thirdly here, what we're going to see is what Jonah became and what this tells us about the effects of sin. <clears throat> I want to read verses 3 and 5 to you. It says, Jonah, however, Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord's presence, and then he went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare uh, and went for the second time down 
into it to go with them to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. Verse 5, the sailors were afraid. Each cried out to his God. They threw their ship's cargo into the sea to lighten the load. Meanwhile, Jonah had gone for the third time down to the lowest part of the vessel, and it stretched out and fallen into a deep sleep. The reason I wanted to read verses 3 and 5 together is because you need to see what both of them are saying to have a full-orbed understanding about what this is showing us about the effects of sin. In verse 3, it says, Jonah got up to flee. Now, immediately after that, it says he went down to Joppa to find a ship. He went down into that ship, and then he went down into the recesses, the very belly of that vessel. What the Hebrews getting across here, whenever you see that kind of repetition in the Bible, this is the word down is being used three times here to describe Jonah's state. Whenever you see that kind of repetition in the Bible, it's meant to get us to sit up and take notice. What the Hebrews getting across here is that when Jonah decided to walk away from God, when he decided to try to be the own author of his own story, what happened was his life became this, this slow and steady descent, and it ended with what we're, what's called here a deep sleep. We're going to get to what that means in a second here, but notice before we're told that Jonah went down, 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 follow me here, in verse 3 we're told that he got up. He got up to flee from God. <clears throat> the Hebrew word that's used there, uh, it's, it's, a word, it's Q-U-W-M. It's pronounced kum, and it has dozens of different meanings. And I want, to read, I want to read four definitions of this word to you. This word means, first off, to become powerful. Keep in mind, this is describing Jonah as he decides, I'm done letting God call the shots in my life. It means, first off, to become powerful. Secondly, to be valid. Third, to be proven. Fourth, to be fulfilled. So what we're seeing here is that at the beginning of Jonah's downward spiral, and really all through that downward spiral, Jonah felt powerful. He felt like he was right, like he was doing the right thing. He felt remarkably fulfilled. And so here, here's what this, this is about. What this story is getting across, and this is something I didn't have the chance to touch on the first three weeks of this series because this element really didn't show up in their stories. What this story is getting across uh, is that it should not surprise you if it feels amazing, at least initially, when you decide to run out on God and be your own God. It should not surprise you if when you decide, I'm done taking my cue from God, I'm going to define who I am and how I live. It should not surprise you if at least on the front end, that feels great. Probably a strange thing to hear a pastor say on a Sunday morning, but here's why it's important. If you've been at this church for any length of time, you have absolutely heard me mention the name Tim Keller. Uh, he's, he's home with Jesus now. Uh, Tim Keller, for the first 10 years of his ministry, when he was in his early 20s, he pastored a church in Hopewell, Virginia, that based on the way that it was described, probably looked and felt a lot like this. When he got into his late 40s, 50s, and 60s, he planted a church right in the middle of Manhattan. And interestingly enough, uh, his congregation was um, almost entirely filled with people in their early 20s. And it was not uncommon uh, for as many as one, one third to one half of the people that gathered to hear him speak every, every Sunday uh, to be people who didn't claim to be Christians, but they were, they were you know, they, they wanted to know more. They wanted to know what this is all about, you know, um, am, I, am I wrong in my assumptions about it? You could call them skeptics or seekers or whatever it was, and, and Keller would talk with these people over and over again, and he found a number of commonalities in their stories. And one of the most common stories that he heard uh, went something like this. It came from a, uh, an individual who uh, would say, yeah, I was raised in a really uh, kind of religious, 
um, moralistic, fundamentalist home. You know, it was the regardless of what you believe, you better be at church on Sunday. And, uh, you know, it was a lot of like fear-based kind of instruction. And among other things, what Keller heard over and over from these people is that as a child, they were raised to believe that if you don't do what the Bible says, you're going to be miserable. If you disobey the Bible, you're going to be miserable. If you go out and get drunk, if you do drugs, if you, you know, uh, violate the biblical sexual ethic, then it's going to make you miserable. There's going to be tons of guilt, there's going to be tons, tons of shame, and, and you're absolutely going to hate it. And so what happens inevitably, and maybe you see where I'm going with this, is these kids grew up, they moved out of their parents' house, they went away to college in the big city, they did all the stuff that their parents said is going to make them miserable, and they found out, hey, this doesn't feel too miserable. This actually feels pretty good. Now, I'm telling you this story to say what this Hebrew word is getting across here is, of course, it feels good. People wouldn't sin if it didn't feel good. It wouldn't be tempting if it didn't feel good, at least initially. But what this picture in Jonah is also getting across is that even if you and I don't realize it, what happens when we decide to live as our own gods to be self-determining individuals rather than to take our cue from God, what happens in that moment is we begin this slow and steady descent. And what happens at the end of it is this deep sleep that Jonah falls into. Now, again, the Hebrew word here is really tough to translate, but it comes from a word that's used to describe what God did to Adam in the Garden of Eden when he put him to sleep to take a rib from him. That's really fascinating to me. So when it says here that Jonah fell into this deep sleep, understand this is not talking about Jonah falling to sleep naturally. This is talking about Jonah being put to sleep very unnaturally by anesthesia. Now, when I, you know, started thinking about this, one particular story came to my mind. When I was 24 years old, I got a tonsillectomy, and I would not recommend it. That is a surgery that is, and I was told this on the front end, but that is a surgery that is designed for people under the age of 10. That surgery is a bear to recover from when you're an adult. And I, <laughs> I don't do well with that kind of stuff anyway. But I remember when I was brought into the, uh, I guess, the waiting room, and I'm sitting there all alone in this ridiculous medical gown, feeling incredibly awkward and cold and clammy, and my skin was splotched, you know, that kind of stuff. A nurse came up to me and hit me in the hand and pushed me some unknown medication. And she said, this is going to feel like you just drank a bottle of wine. And I was incredibly nervous. And so I said, how about you just give me the bottle of wine? And she said, actually, I think this is going to be better. So they, they left me in the chair for a few more minutes. And then they, you know, they helped stand me up. And they walked me from the waiting room into, you know, the room that I'd be operated in. I could see my bed. And I remember as I was stepping across the threshold, I said, hey, I don't think this is working. And the nurse said with a smirk on her face, oh, I think it's working just fine. And they, <laughs> they laid me on the table and it's just like in the movies. It's, it's my exact experience. I remember laying on the table, and I could see this big bright light ahead of me and these like three or four kind of blobs that I couldn't really make out. They were moving all around and, you know, doing stuff. And one of them picked up my left arm and they put a 12-lead on my ribs, which really tickled me. And so I said, and this is a direct quote, Whoo! <laughs> Get it all out, Okay. <coughs> Anyway, that's what they did. They all laughed at me, uh, and then that's the last thing I remember. I was out, and then I woke up after surgery, and who knows what ridiculous things came out of my mouth then. The point is, I tell that story to say, anesthesia, I think you can agree, while it is an incredibly useful thing when you need surgery, it is actually a terrible thing in any other context. So society would crumble immediately if people were just walking around under anesthesia, because what anesthesia does is it actually... It, it sort of turns off a necessary part of your humanity. 
You know, if, if you think about kind of what, what was happening to me, is anesthesia, first and foremost, it numbs you. Uh, it causes you to make light of things that should actually be deeply troubling to you. You know, you're giggling about things that you should be running away from, quite sober about. It causes you to, um, to not be able to recognize and respond to danger appropriately. You actually don't respond to reality appropriately at all. But the, the, the real sinister thing about anesthesia is you don't know it when it's taking effect. That's actually the hallmark of it. That's like when I was walking into that room, kind of, I don't think it's working. Everybody but me could see, oh, it's working just fine, Rye. You know, but you don't know it when it's running through your veins until it's too late and you're kind of out. And my, I say all that to say, think about how significant it is that that's how the Word of God describes Jonah here. That that's what the Bible is saying. That's the effect of sin. That's the effect of a human heart looking to God and saying, I, rather than you, God, am going to define the parameters of my life. What happens is you slowly but surely, you become subject to a very powerful anesthetic. Because what, what's happening to Jonah here, he's numb. You know, he, he, a necessary part of his humanity is turned off. He's, uh, he's, he feels great about things that he should actually be you know, deeply troubled about. He's not recognizing or responding appropriately to the danger that he's in. And the worst thing about it all is, is he doesn't even know what he doesn't know. He can't tell what's happening to him because, of course, it's hardest to read the label when you're inside the jar. And so because of all this, here's Jonah now. And maybe somebody listening to this can relate. Jonah now has done something that you can be sure he swore at one point in his life he would never do. I guarantee you, when Jonah was prophesying under the reign of Jeroboam II as a prophet of God, he would never imagine a moment in his life where he would run out on God's call in his life. Never imagine that. What, what shame, what ridiculous to be a prophet of God and fail to speak on behalf of God. Jonah here has done something he swore he'd never do because he's become something he swore he'd never be, a runaway prophet. This is a picture of what happened to Jonah, and it's a picture of what happens to all of us when we decide to build our identity on something other than God. That's the effect of sin. Now, having that understanding of what exactly is going on in Jonah's life, uh, it's clear the only solution to somebody who's under a powerful anesthesia, uh, they need a really powerful wake-up call. And so sure enough, that's exactly what God offers. I want to look lastly here about how Jonah's rescued and what that tells us about the answer to sin. In verse 4, it says, Then the Lord hurled a violent wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose on the sea, that the ship threatened to break apart. Now, when I was putting this together, the, the neat part of, of doing a 10-week series that kind of looks at all these different stories is uh, you wind up comparing them, and you see what they have in common, but then the differences really stand out. Um, what's really interesting to me is that when you compare Jonah's life to, say, the story of Cain or the story of King Saul, there's the, the, the two people we talked about the last two weeks, one of the obvious differences is that God gets a hold of Jonah in a way that he really didn't get a hold of either of them. You know, back in Genesis 4, all we're told about Cain is he goes off a restless wanderer, and that's the end of his life. And what we looked at last week in King Saul was, uh, you know, God says, I regret that I made him king. The anointing has passed from him to David, and Saul never recovers from that. His life just kind of limps along until he dies in a fairly um, tragic way. And so, of course, that makes me um, ask the question, well, if, if Jonah was turned around here, what's the real difference? And the answer... I don't really like this answer. Maybe you don't like this answer, but the, the answer, what, what's the difference between Jonah who turns around and Cain and Saul who didn't, is that the Lord hurled a storm at Jonah. That's why he turned around. 
You know, back in Genesis 4, it is remarkable to me that the lengths that God was willing to go to to try to intercept Cain. He comes to Cain personally. He talks to him. He asks him questions. He tries to get him to face himself. It doesn't work. Last week with King Saul, through the prophet Samuel, God does the same thing. He speaks into Saul's life. He asks Saul questions. He tries to get him to face himself. It doesn't work for either of them. But what God does here with Jonah is he hurls a storm at him. And I'd ask you to consider how this story describes the storm because there's a good chance that if you haven't been through a situation like this, there's a good chance you're in one right now. You know, this storm that Jonah was in, it's first off a storm that can't be, it, it, it can't be escaped. You can't just navigate your way around it through technique or skill or hard work or effort because it straight up says that the sailors, their first instinct, we got to get back to land, we got to row as hard as we can, and they just can't get around this storm. So this is a situation that can't be navigated by human wisdom or effort. Um, it's, it's obviously, it's a terrifying thing, but I think most significantly, it's a profoundly destabilizing experience that God allowed Jonah to enter into. It's literally threatening to break apart this boat that he was um, looking to find refuge in outside of God. Now, what this is getting across, and I think you know this to be true. I think maybe if we went around the room, all of us could say that we're living examples of the truth of this statement. What this is getting across is that nobody really wakes up. Nobody really faces him or herself. Nobody even begins to change in a deep and lasting way apart from a storm. Apart from an experience that makes us feel powerless, an experience that literally and figuratively rocks our boat, and an experience that threatens to break up the current existing foundation of our lives. Nobody changes apart from that. And at this point, I think it's, it's necessary that I point out something that, again, I'm sure you can say amen to, while it, while it is true that in general, people do not change unless they experience a storm, what's also true, follow me, is that a lot of people who do experience a storm don't change. The Puritans had this brilliant saying, they said the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. The idea being the same experience that can melt one person and make them malleable, that can make them useful, that can open them up, that same experience can hit another person and it makes them hard and brittle and frail and useless to anybody. And so it's great that the storm, it's great to talk about the fact that the storms that God allows us to enter into and even hurls into our lives create the opportunity for us to change in deep and lasting ways, but it doesn't happen automatically. And so what, what we see here is that it's shown as response to his storm that shows us what we need to do in our storms if we want to change for the better. And what you're seeing here is that in the middle of this storm, Jonah decides to stop running for really the first time in his life. Uh, he, he tells the sailors uh, it was his God who sent the storm. Um, he recognizes that they should not be put in harm's way for his actions, and so he actually recommends that they throw him in. And I don't think Jonah, actually the story of Jonah proves he wasn't the finished product here. It's not like he's an entirely selfless individual here. I don't think his motives were entirely altruistic, but the bottom line is this is the first time in Jonah's story that he even begins to think about anybody other than himself, and it's the first time that he stops running. And here's the irony. Here's what you and I have to see. Had Jonah continued to run from the storm, it would have killed him. Because he stopped running and decided to face the storm and let it do what it needed to do in his life, he was actually saved. And that is how the storms that God sends always work. When God sends a storm into our lives, and I'm sure this is right where some of us are right now this morning, every instinct in our heart is run. 
Every instinct in our heart is to do what the sailors did, try to get out of this through techniques or, or our own effort or willpower or whatever it is. Maybe it's Jonah. Let's just try to sleep. Let's just try to medicate ourselves through it. The point is we don't want to face it. <clears throat> we don't want to stop and sit still long enough and ask, why is this happening? Why would God bring this into my life or allow this into my life? Is there a chance that there's something that he wants to do underneath this lightning and this thunder and these clouds and these waves? Is there a foundation in my life that actually needs to break up? We want to run. We don't want to ask those questions and let God do his work. But if we will, that's where hope is found because it's when Jonah does that and only when he, only when he does that that he begins to change. And so that's, the, that's the, the, the conclusion to the matter. What do we have to do? We just have to trust God in our storms. We just have to trust God in our storms. Now, that is theologically accurate. Uh, that is great advice. However, it's not very helpful to just leave people there because it's actually, as it turns out, an incredibly difficult thing to do to just do the bumper sticker statement, let go and let God in the middle of something that is literally breaking up the foundation of your life. So there's one question, one final question I want to speak to before we conclude our time together today. How do you do this? How do you do that? I got to believe that there's some Jonas right now that, that you're, you're in the middle of a situation that is totally terrifying. It's something that you can't do anything about, and it is profoundly destabilizing your life. The question is, how do you trust God in the midst of something like that? And the answer to that question is found in understanding how it is that God could give somebody like Jonah a second chance. <clears throat> uh, the plain fact of this story is that in the, at least in the opening chapter of, of uh, the book of Jonah, Jonah looks about as bad as you can look. Uh, he, uh, everything about Jonah was given to him by grace. He didn't work really hard to become a part of the people of God. He was just born into it. He didn't study really hard to be a prophet of God. It was a calling that God gave on his life. The point is, everything about Jonah was his by grace, and yet here he does in the opening part of this story. He's doing everything that he can to make sure nobody else experiences the grace that he did nothing to deserve himself. That's about as ugly as it gets. And it raises the question, how on earth could God forgive somebody like this? And the reason, the only reason that God can, can forgive Jonah, the only reason that God can forgive any of us is because about 700 years after this story, Jesus Christ said, the only sign, Jesus said, the only sign I'll give you is the sign of the prophet Jonah because, referring to himself, Jesus said, one greater than Jonah is here. I can end this teaching today by saying, you know, just trust God in the midst of your storms. Just choose to surrender. Just let him do whatever he needs to do in your life. The, the fact is, anybody that's been on planet Earth long enough knows that's about the, the most difficult thing that we'll ever be asked to do, to let go of the reins of our own lives and trust that God knows and wants what's best for us goes against everything going on in our hearts, everything that's been going on in our hearts since Genesis chapter 3. The truth is, though, it, it's so much easier for you and I to be able to do that than it would have been for Jonah because we know so much more about the heart of God than he did. What the gospel allows us to do, and I hope, some, I hope for somebody this becomes personal today, what the gospel of Jesus Christ allows you to do, and only the gospel will allow you to do this, is to look at the worst things happening in the world and, and more specifically the worst things happening in your life and to know the gospel tells you that underneath it all there is a God who loves you and a God who is for you because we know the one who is greater than Jonah the one who was willing to enter into the ultimate storm of God's wrath with no one to save him for us. And here's how Christianity works. When a human heart begins to understand in a more than intellectual, theoretical way 
what God through Christ has done for us, what God through Christ has done for you, when we begin to understand what actually happened with Jesus Christ living and dying and rising again for us, that gives us the ability to move through life with this confidence that can say, okay, I don't know the specific reason that God is allowing this storm in my life. I just know what the reason can't be. It can't be that he doesn't love me. It can't be that he doesn't care about me. He's gone through far too much for me for that to be the case. And so whatever the reason is, I know what it's not. And at the cross, he's proved what he's willing to go through for me. He's proved how valuable I am to him. He's proved how much he loves me. And therefore, even if I don't understand it, even if it feels like I'm dying every day, I can trust him in the midst of this storm. And when you and I begin to be able to do that, that's where something beautiful that can never otherwise happen begins to happen in our lives. One of the major themes of the story of Jonah, and I'm going to get into this more next week, is that identity transformation is not a quick process, and it's not a man-made process. It's not something that happens through human effort. It requires us to see over and over again in a personal way what God through Christ has done for us. That's what the story of Jonah shows us. So I want to call the worship team up, and, um, and I'll leave you with this idea. I mentioned this on the front end. But the story of Jonah, it's really just the story of someone who had really strong ideas about how his life was supposed to go, uh, only to wake up one day and find that God had other ideas, which I think is something that we all eventually discover. What Jonah shows us is that on the one hand, when we find ourselves in situations like that, every impulse in our heart tells us to run. Every impulse in our heart tells us to just take matters into our own hands. But what Jonah also shows us in this opening chapter is that if we can resist that urge, If we can, through the power of the gospel, do what is so unnatural to us, which is sit still and choose to trust him even in the midst of that storm, then we can be changed in deep and lasting ways, ways that would never otherwise be possible. And the way that we develop that kind of trust that's able to look to God and say, okay, whatever you need to do, I'm your vessel. Whatever you need to do, however painful it is, do your work in me. The way that we develop that kind of kind of trust, you just have to see what God was willing to go through for you in Jesus. You just have to see what the one who called himself the one greater than Jonah was willing to go through for us because when we see that he entered the ultimate storm of God's wrath, that's the one storm that could really break us apart, the one storm that could really drown us, the one storm that could really kill us. When we see what he was willing to go through for us, we know, we can know in our heart of hearts, we're going to be okay. We're going to be okay. In our infinitely smaller storms, we're not going to drown because the Son of God was drowned for us. If you want to know what was going on in the deep recesses of Jonah's heart and that led to all of this and the lengths that God was willing to go through to, to deal with that in him and pull that out of him and how he deals with that in us, I'd encourage you to come back next week, bring somebody you care about. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. Father God, we're all Jonah. Uh, there's just, uh, if we're honest with ourselves, Nobody has a right to look down on anybody else. And maybe it manifests itself differently in all of our lives, but every one of us, every one of us, has such strong opinions about how you're supposed to do things, um, about how my life's supposed to go, how my marriage, how my family, how my physical health, how my career, how my life is supposed to go. We all have strong opinions about that, God, and we all eventually discover yours are different. And, uh, and we want to run. And some of us know what it's like to run. Some of us might be running right now, God. I'm just asking 
that the gospel would be so real to us that we would get to know the one who called himself the one greater than Jonah in such a deep and meaningful and personal and life-changing way that we gain the ability to do maybe the hardest thing we'll ever have to do, which is just stop running. Stop running and trust you, that you know what's best, that you want what's best, because you proved it uh, 2,000 years ago at a place called Calvary. Please help us to be a community of people that trust you enough to do the hardest thing we'll ever have to do, which is hand our lives over to you, either for the first time or just for the next time. In the name of Jesus, we ask all these things. God's people said, amen.